And welcome to episode number 76 of Chill Squared. I'm your host, Andrew Chelney, and as always, a jam-packed episode today. Before we get started, though, go back and listen to last week's episode, if you haven't already, NHL legend and Hall of Famer Pat LaFontaine stopped by by the show last week to talk about his career, the, the Declaration of Principles, and a ton more awesome stuff. Also, follow the show on Twitter at Chill Squared. You'll find more hot takes, news about guests coming on the show, and more. Or if you want to follow me personally on Twitter, it's at Chelney Andrew, C-H-E-L-N-E-Y. Andrew, one cool feature of the hosting platform on the podcast, Anchor.fm, is the supporter option. I don't have any sponsors, but if you want to sponsor the show, hit me up and we will talk. Uh, it's me, myself, and I doing this show out of love for, for the game on one of my days off from work. So if you want to become a sponsor, all you have to do is hit support this podcast, Anchor.fm, and choose an amount you're comfortable with support the show and also get exclusive content. And though I am a full-time associate producer for NBA and NFL radio at SiriusXM, this podcast is not affiliated in any way with the company. The opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and mine alone and may or may not reflect the views of SiriusXM. I mean, I don't know. If you're angry at my takes, direct them to me and me alone, please and thank you. Let's talk about the New Jersey Devils. A lot of questions surrounding this team, touted as one of the winners of the offseason heading into October. They are 9-14-4 and and second to dead last in the Eastern Conference. I don't think anybody expected them to sell top of the Eastern Conference or anything, but I can safely assume there were expectations of, well better than this and here to help me understand what exactly is going on in new jersey is is play-by-play broadcaster for the devils steve cangelosi cange what's up welcome to the show hey pat lafontaine as guest for episode number 75 uh, an absolute gentleman and an absolute great player i've got some big shoes to follow on this uh, program <laughs> so congratulations to you <laughs> i'm doing well andrew i'm doing well thanks for having Absolutely. Anytime. So before we deep dive into some puck here, I have a singular non-hockey related question for you, and it's important. Sure. So Christmas is in a couple of weeks, right? Decorations are up everywhere. Your answer to this question holds a lot of weight. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Yes. Really? <laughs> what, what, what makes you say that? Why is Die Hard a Christmas movie? The backdrop of the movie is enough for me <laughs> to put it in that category. Now, I think that 50% of the people or maybe 80% of the people are going to say that's lame, but that's okay. I wouldn't watch it with seven-year-old kids around Christmas time. I would hope Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is on, but you get my point. Yeah, the music, the backdrop, it's enough for me, sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I won't won't fight you on that one. I mean, personally, there's nothing about the the, the scenery's Christmas, right? It's Christmas time. But nothing about the movie is Christmassy. But you know what? You know, so, you know something? Uh, I'm going to waffle already. It took you one little comeback to change my mind. Right. Nah, it's not on my Christmas list. You got it. <laughs> well, I, well I, change, I changed Steve Cangelosi's mind. So uh, I guess we're off, to a, we're off to a great start here. Uh, so if you thought that was a big question, we'll hang tight because these devils have quite a few that need to be answered. Let's start with the biggest acquisitions of the offseason. Jack Hughes taken first overall, a trade with P.K. Subban, and the signing of Wayne Simmons. What are some of the positives and negatives you've seen from those three players so far? Well, as far as Jack Hughes goes, we're, uh, I always put this in the context of we're talking about an 18-year-old kid. And that's always uh, foremost on my mind uh, when evaluating any part of his game. The creativity has been as advertised. Uh, there's been an adjustment here for Jack. 
in the National Hockey League, because if you go back to what he did with the United States development uh, team last year, he played almost the entire season with the same two line mates uh, in Caulfield and Boldy. And then he comes to the NHL, and here we are. We haven't really hit a third of the National Hockey League season, and he's had to adapt, A, to the physicality of the game, uh, and the speed of the game, obviously, which is a very different thing with what he was accustomed to playing for the United States team, but also, you know, fluctuation of line mates here. He has played with some combination to this point of guys like Taylor Hall and Kyle Palmieri. He has played alongside the likes of Jesper Boquist. He has played alongside the likes of a rugged winger like Wayne Simmons, and he's sorting all of that out. He continues to do well. I expect him to see him back in the lineup on Friday. He's missed a few games here after blocking a shot uh, on Thanksgiving night in Montreal, but he's uh, expected to be back as soon as tomorrow. It's encouraging for Jack Hughes. Uh, I don't think we're going to see much in the Calder Trophy conversation this year. I think the best of Hughes as a rookie is yet to come. He's going to get more acclimated and do well as the season wears on. But every time you look like a, you look at a guy like McCarr in Colorado and what he's doing, you kind of see how you know the bar has been raised in, in terms of what it's going to take to win a Calder Trophy this year. As far as Wayne Simmons goes, I loved the move when it was made, and I still do. Wayne Simmons is coming into this season on the heels of four different surgeries, and he insists now physically he is as good as he has been in a very long time. And the reason I love the deal for the Devils with Wayne Simmons when it was done back on July 1st is that it was for good money, granted, $5 million for one year. But the key there is for one year. He wants to get his career back on track. I think the Devils needed something of a template of that kind of player who's pretty vocal, who's pretty physical, who can talk with his stick, who can talk with his fists on occasion if that's necessary. And even in a bad year, Wayne scored 17 goals last season. The Devils only had three guys on the team who scored more than that one year. So I thought that you know, it would take a lot for me to look at this deal negatively. He scored once in his first 15 games this season. He scored three times since. A lot of power play time. And it's been something of an adjustment for him coming into this organization as well. So, uh, you know, it, it hasn't been much different from what I expected. P.K. Subban is the big surprise uh, as we complete the, the three people that you asked about big additions coming in in the offseason. Uh, because to me, you know, we're talking about a drought here of 15 games without a point. We're talking about a guy who I think has exceptional talent who's still seeking his first power play point this season. You know, it, it's remarkable when you think of it in that context because the Devils have played 27 games already. Now, it's interesting to me to see what happens here as Elaine Nazardine settles into this job on an interim head coaching uh, basis about how he might change P.K. Subban's role moving forward. This, to me, might be one of the more interesting things does he say, I've got to have Subban on my first wave power play, which John Hines really has not done for the majority of the season up until this point and through his dismissal from the job on Tuesday. Um, I remember doing an interview probably 
a day before, I think it was exactly a day before the Devils made uh, a trade for PK. And the host was saying, what do you think? Because the rumors were out there that he would become a New Jersey Devil. And I said, I didn't think they were going to do it. Uh, he had just crossed over to the wrong side of 30. And if you looked at the core of the team about when they really thought they could go for it with uh, a player of that nature, we were probably looking at a ways away because Nico Heischer, Jack Hughes, Jesper Bratt, Will Butcher, those guys are all still very young. What I didn't know at the time is that the Devils could get PK at the very affordable price that they wound up getting him at, uh, which is to say a prospect, a prospect and a couple of picks, neither of which is a first rounder. So when the deal was consummated, I said to myself, okay, uh, it's worth the risk here. But this is something that's so important for the New Jersey Devils here for the next three years. They're going to need production out of P.K. Subban sooner rather than later if they're not going to, if we're going to see a season uh, of any significance here uh, that doesn't die before Christmas Day. So this is a big thing for the Devils. P.K. Subban needs to be the very best version of himself for this team to really make any sort of mark as the season goes on. That's a great point, and I'm glad you mentioned John Hines and Ali Nazardine because that's where I was going to lead uh, in the next question here. So one of the elephants in the room, obviously, is that uh, John Hines fired a couple days ago, and the promotion, at least well, for right now, of Ali Nazardine, former NHL defenseman, turned assistant coach in Wilkes, paired for five seasons before jumping up to be the Devils assistant coach in 2015. He's never been a head coach at any level. Uh, but, but before we get to Elaine here, take me through the last week or so for this team leading up to the firing of John Hines, specifically the last 20 24 hours or so between the 7-1 loss in Buffalo and the 4-3 loss the next night at home against Vegas. Two games back-to-back, but led by different coaches behind the bench. What did you see both on and off the ice from the players and the rest of the organization? Well, the two losses against the Rangers and Buffalo uh, were both John Hines' games, and then he was dismissed after the 7-1 loss to Buffalo, and Nasruddin makes his debut in uh, the game against Vegas, which which they lost 4-3. Um, the thing about this season is that every time you thought the Devils had a little bit of traction going, uh, that traction disappeared very quickly. They still haven't won three straight games this season. They won on Thanksgiving night in Montreal, and I thought it was something of a gutsy game where for, the Canadians wind up tying it three times and still they find a way to hold on and survive with Mackenzie Blackwood. There was another game in Montreal earlier this year on November 16th. That was, again, you put it in that gutsy category where they were trailing three to one and they wind up winning four, three on a Kyle Palmieri overtime goal. And every time there was a game like that, it seemed as if they never had the follow-up to really make that kind of result hold on what happened against the Rangers on Saturday and what happened against Buffalo on Monday night. Well, I can only speak through the words of Ray Shiro here who said the Ranger game was disconcerting. They gave up two shorthanded goals. Their power play went over eight, the Buffalo game. There weren't even words to really describe it. Uh, there was no execution and five first period goals and nothing went right in a disastrous first period 
I wasn't really sure that the Devils were going to pull the plug on John Hines after that game, but they did. And I guess in a bottom line business, that cannot be construed as any sort of great surprise. Um, I don't know that they have a clear idea where it goes from here. Uh, Elaine Nasruddin, I do believe, will get a fair look here, and he'll get a good shake. Everybody I have spoken to inside and outside the organization say he commands great respect. This is a guy who's been on radar as a potential NHL head coach for a long time. But it's so different, Andrew. Uh, When you are the so-called ornament on the hood that an NHL head coach is, you're the one that everybody looks to for answers. You are the face of the organization. In the best of times and in the worst of times, you are the one that has to sit there at the microphone with cameras rolling, with people watching on social media, and you have to make sense of it all. And if you don't make sense of it all in a certain way, your fan base gets very antsy. Uh, There was a clamoring, I think, uh, for John Hines' job among the fan base that was building for a long time. But if you're looking for some great critique of John Hines, you're not going to find it from me because I think he did an excellent job in the time he was here. And I would make a strong argument that this season is really the only season in which one of his teams had underachieved. He took them to the playoffs back in 2017-18, and got them in when nobody thought they would. You know, the three other seasons that he coached for the entire year, which one of those teams was he supposed to make a mark with? Uh, Somebody please tell me, the one in which Bobby Farnham played 50 games, the one in which Bo Bennett found himself as a top six or top nine guy for 65 games last year, when Taylor Hall missed 49 games with injury and when 12 American Hockey League call-ups find their way into the NHL lineup, please, that was an extraordinary task to put a competitive team on the ice for so much of his time with New Jersey. And we always knew this was going to be a major rebuild. I just don't think this team ever got back on its feet after starting this season winless in six. It's almost as if it wobbled too easily from that point, and they needed to have a start to the season that wasn't going to make them as fragile as they've been. And now we'll see whether that can change in the short term with Elaine or maybe long term if he opens some eyes and makes an impression here. We'll see. And that's a great point. And adding on to that, do you think Elaine Nazardine will remain the head coach or if they're looking looking for a head coach will they go for an established voice somewhere else or maybe they'll ask someone like scott stevens if, if he perhaps wants to take the reins because as we as i'm sure you've heard with the coaching controversies that have been illuminated in recent weeks from babcock peters crawford and that's just saying at the nhl level here do you think this has made it harder to hire a head coach because i mean obviously these stories being brought to the spotlight are important because we never want to see abuse at any level in this sport or in any other sport for that matter uh, I, I know you're not in the room, obviously, with Chero as he conducts interviews, but speaking specifically from a hiring process, how do you think the last few weeks have affected the hiring process of coaches, if at all? Uh, I think that every organization that's run the right way does its due diligence, okay? And I think now, more than ever, those questions will be asked and everyone's antenna will be up. I cannot speak with any level of expertise Uh, to the actual process of what takes place here. But 
there's a lot that likely goes into that process. And a guy like Ray, who's been around the National Hockey League his entire life, this is someone who was an assistant general manager more than 20 years ago with the Ottawa Senators. He worked with David Poyle when he first got the job in Nashville, the only general manager the Predators have had. So uh, to say that every team, including the Devils, is not going to do everything possible to trace the steps of any potential candidate here, uh, I I think is, is, is something that's, that should have been obvious all along and perhaps even more so to cut to the answer to your question about Elaine, I can easily see him getting the rest of this season. Okay. Uh, I can do that. Uh, you know, if the right candidate emerges in January or February, it's not something I wouldn't say is impossible, but I think that, any coach with any sort of established resume, right? Because look, this is going to go one of two ways. Okay. The devils are either going to find their way, start winning games, have a much better final two thirds of the season than they did the first third of the season. And if that's the case, why would you change? Why would you replace Elaine Nazardine in mid season? Or they are going to wallow well behind the pace of the contenders in the Eastern Conference. And if you are a coach of any stature, why would you accept such a position in midseason if you would probably have the luxury of in the summer of 2020 weighing the same offer if it's still extended by the Devils or an offer from elsewhere in the National Hockey League? Scott Stevens is a brilliant hockey guy. I don't know that that will come. I know Scott, you know, everything that's happened here in the last couple of uh, of days, obviously, has, has made news in the Devils universe, and it seems pretty chaotic. Scott came in at what I still think is is the single most chaotic time in in Devils post Stanley Cup history when he and Adam Oates were asked to co-coach the team after the firing of Pete DeBoer uh, and Lou Lamorello, who was still running the organization, labeled them co-coaches, but he would be the one that that met and greeted the media before and after every game. So the last taste of Scott in New Jersey, I'm sure doesn't bring back very pleasant memories for him. Time maybe heals all wounds. Maybe they go down that route. But I also think, you know, what does Scott Stevens want at this point in his life? He talks like a coach. He sounds like a coach. He'd probably make a very good coach for the first time since he was uh, assisting uh, with the Minnesota Wild a couple of years ago. It's there for him. But, you know, it's a lifestyle that not everybody likes to choose here as well. I think you have to keep that in mind. It's it's 24 seven. It's 365. And. Is he committed to that? I don't know that that's something Scott has answered with great clarity yet. But if he decides to go that down that road, that's a great hockey mind and a guy who's all business too. Well, another elephant in the room is Taylor Hall. 28 years old, hard trophy winner a couple of years ago, making $6 million and will be a UFA at the end of the year. Only four goals in 27 games, but is still leading the team with 22 points. A ton of speculation surrounding where where he'll be playing come the trade deadline. You talk to him on virtually a daily basis, Kanj. How does the situation of, and the noise surrounding it affect him? Well, it's hard to gauge that now because he's not discussing it. 
Okay. Uh, I mean, I think there was a time that everybody was comfortable with the situation. And I think once it got to U.S. Thanksgiving, uh, and that to me was always kind of a timeline of, okay, my antenna would be up now about the future of Taylor Hall. And we've passed U.S. Thanksgiving at this point, uh, where I think you kind of, uh, you're, you're trying to envision a scenario in which he rides this out with the New Jersey Devils and the team start this year probably makes that a little bit more difficult. I always did believe that the Devils were not going to go the John Tavares route here. Okay. Uh, I, I never once believed that they would go the entire season, have Taylor Hall uh, on this roster and then discuss dollars and cents with him at the conclusion of the year. Uh, I always thought that if it wasn't going to happen in a reasonable time frame, that they would probably move a very valuable asset. Now, these things are very fluid. I think that people have to understand that. Situations do change here. Uh, there's a different feel around the team the last couple of days. There's been a little bit more energy with Elaine Nasruddin. I think sometimes there's a short-term bump when there's a different lead voice in the room. And we'll see how Taylor Hall reacts to that. And we'll see numerically whether or not he gets his game together. Uh, this is still a terrific player, okay? You mentioned the four goals, but he's still this team's leading scorer. His line mates have fluctuated here through the first 27 games. He's obviously not thrilled with the way he's playing, but let's not say he's playing poorly. He's just not playing at Taylor Hall Hart Trophy-like standards that were established here a couple of years ago. Um, the team needs to start winning quickly if it's going to work out with Taylor Hall. And if they don't, I think there's a little bit more clarity here on, uh, on the future. And it gets, it gets hard to envision him a long-term New Jersey devil if this was to continue, let's say, for another couple of weeks. But they're not in a rush. The deadline is February 24th. You could make the argument if you can get a little bit for him now than you might in the dead of winter. But I don't know that they're there just yet. I'm aware of what Pierre Lebrun has reported, that the phone is open, Ray is listening to offers, but I've been fooled many, many times in the past. I wouldn't say this is sealed just yet. Let's, let's watch how they play and how he plays in particular these next couple of weeks, because he does like it here. Now, the only thing that does come to mind in light of recent events is that I always had the suspicion that he was a big, big fan of John Hines. Uh, and late in his Hart Trophy winning season, he made a point of telling everyone that John Hines had offered a level of coaching that he had never experienced in his life. Well, that relationship's over now. So now can Elaine Nasruddin continue to cultivate that and maybe even bring it to a new level? I do know this. Whether he's a devil or not, we're going to have a motivated Taylor Hall here for the rest of the season. He's got big money on the line, and more importantly, the guy is a serious professional, and he's got a hockey reputation on the line here, too. And I think he does want to make the best of whatever time he has left with this team. I do believe that in my heart.
Well, you mentioned that he's not playing at Taylor Hall level and he's still leading the team in points, right? He's got 22 points in 27 games and he's not playing at the hard trophy level that he has been. So imagine if uh, he does play the rest of the season in hard trophy form, all of a sudden you got a a 90, 95 point player in Taylor Hall. I mean, which obviously the Devils want, but also other teams are going to be scratching and clawing to get a phone call in at the deadline if that day comes and there's no contract on the line uh but but also other team other players that have been uh haven't been meeting their expectations at least for themselves is the goaltending now i know i'm not breaking any news here but we've mm-hmm. uh, we've even seen Corey schneider being sent down to the minors while he tries to get his game back together mackenzie blackwood only 22 and goalies notoriously take longer to develop than other players but he's been he's the best goaltender in the, in the organization right now he's rocking an 883 record which compared to the team's record of 914 and 4 it's pretty good uh, a sub 900 mm-hmm. save percentage 896 to be exact and a goal saved above average stat of negative 7.65, which means that if you were to put a statistically league average goaltender in the same position Blackwood has been in, he would have allowed mm-hmm. 7.65 less goals than Blackwood has. So is the solution for New Jersey to continue with Blackwood as the starter to push through his growing pains while in front of a less than seller defense? Or do you think there's a scenario in which New Jersey trades for short-term goaltending so that Blackwood doesn't have to be peppered every single night. Right now, there's a heck of a lot from top to bottom in the organization that needs to be addressed because the record is reflective of their goaltending. It's reflective of the defense in front of the goaltending. It is reflective of a lack of scoring punch as well. It's reflective of special teams that are both in the bottom third in the National Hockey League. Corey Schneider was waived on November 18th. In that time, I was crunching numbers preparing this afternoon for the couple of games I'm doing tomorrow and on Saturday. Since November 18th, the day the Devils waived Corey Schneider, only two teams in the NHL have allowed more goals than the New Jersey Devils, okay? So that was supposed to mark a bold move by the organization and a clean slate for the goaltenders as Louis Domingue was called up from the Binghamton Devils. It has translated to a couple of isolated, strong moments for Deming and Blackwood. But other than that, it has translated to more of the same, a team that just gives up far too many goals. Last year, this team gave up 80 more goals than the uh, Jennings Trophy-winning Islanders last season. Okay, That was an area I really believe would only go one way up this year. And instead, they're on pace to give up more goals this season than they did one year ago. This is also something that I think has taken the organization by great surprise. Because if you go back to the preseason, Corey Schneider was lights out. He was fantastic. He had as good of a preseason as a guy could have. And he comes into this season now two years removed from the hip surgery he had which is always a great barometer for guys who've had that surgery. We've seen players like Pecorine come back from that and and perform at an extraordinary level uh, the second year after that hip surgery. And for Schneider in the preseason, it seemed like we were going to get a little of that, and then we did not. Uh, The first game he leaves, he's playing extremely well, and he cramps up and leaves, and it seems like a lot of the bad karma all kicked in from game one this season. Mackenzie Blackwood's got a heck of a lot of talent. 
Mackenzie Blackwood is athletic. He is explosive. He's also 22. And that, I think, is also something that the Devils realize. And I do think that they're going to give him an opportunity here to settle in with a workload of a number one goaltender. I don't think they would have made the decision with Corey had they not believed that he had it in him. I think he is a number one goaltender in the NHL for somebody. I think that team's going to be the New Jersey Devils moving forward. Could they acquire another veteran goaltender for the organization? Perhaps. But I think this is going to be Mackenzie Blackwood's team. As much as you could say, you're going to put it in the hands of a 22-year-old at this point. Yeah, uh, right now I don't see them going outside the organization to look at how they can improve themselves in the crease when I think they have a lot of other priorities right now to make this team better from top to bottom. And the other thing is this, you know, then go back to the core of that team. You know, the timeline for Mackenzie Blackwood reaching his peak is also going to be close to the timeline of guys like Heischer and Hughes and Bratt and Boquist reaching their peak. So the fact that he's a young guy doesn't have to be a negative. I think when you look big picture, it could be positive for this team. He's got a lot of talent. I can tell you that. I don't I don't want to make you feel old, Kanj, but uh, Mackenzie Blackwood mm-hmm. is three months older than I am. So we are... There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we, are we are practically the same age, uh, and he's playing in the NHL, and I'm talking about him. So I don't know how that makes me feel. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's the se- you know he was the second goaltender selected in his draft. Okay, so you know th- there's there was an expectation with Mackenzie Blackwood. Eventually, there was always the thought that there was some timeline for Mackenzie Blackwood to emerge as a guy who was going to be seriously in the conversation as a number one. The Capitals drafted Ilya Samsonov that year. He was the only goaltender who went higher. And I think we got a little taste of McKenzie last year, long before that we thought we would in the NHL. And he won 10 games. He played 20, but he won 10 games. That was a first good experience for him in the National Hockey League. Um, I, you know, good things in every organization sort of breed more good things. When guys are scoring guys defend better. When guys are making good passes, guys are more physical. When players are uh, are winning games, then you're a better goaltender. Uh, you feed off the energy, I think, of everything in front of you. But right now, you know, with a team that's nine, fourteen, and four through its first twenty-seven games, I think that there has to be a little bit of a change here in momentum for us to have good conversations about a lot of facets of the team. Uh, including what's going on in goal right now. I think Mackenzie Blackwood's going to be a long-term guy in New Jersey. I do believe that. I don't think it's going outside the organization. One last question before I let you go, Kanj. Again, really appreciate taking the time. It uh, means From a lot point. to me that, that you that you are giving me some of a couple of minutes in your uh, very busy schedule. I know you got a game tomorrow. You got a game. You, you're preparing. Uh, so taking a couple of minutes to talk to me about the Devils uh, means a lot to me. Now, one last question here: What is your overall outlook on the Devils as a team? today and as a team in the future how far away are they in your opinion from potentially returning to playoff contention or at least coming close to it 
It's a great question. Um, I wish I had something uh, that I was confident in a definitive answer uh, uh, for you. Um, what I what I do think is that I always have to go back to what I thought at the start of this year, and I thought it was a team that had done enough to put itself in the playoff conversation in the Eastern Conference. Okay, so as we sit here and talk, I'm eight weeks away from that being. My, my, my frame of thought here, okay? You know, has so much changed in the last eight weeks for me to say this team has set it back a couple, it set itself back a couple of years? No, absolutely not. Uh, I think their record over the final two thirds of the season will be better than it was for the first third. Is that going to be enough to be in a conversation for a postseason berth this year? That's going to be hard. The numbers and history tell us that's going to be hard. St. Louis Blues, what they did last year from January 5th on, may never happen again in the next hundred years of National Hockey League history. So that's, uh, it goes without saying, that's the exception, that's not the norm. Um, so, you know, from a realistic standpoint, you know, I, I think you're, you're looking at a team that has a core of players from which you can say they're absolute contenders. Nico Heischer is going to develop very soon, and the groundwork's already been laid uh, into a Selkie Trophy contender in the National Hockey League. He is a terrific, smart, two-way player. That's part of your nucleus here. We've only seen Jack Hughes on the surface here. There's so much more that he's going to be equipped for with a full season in the National Hockey League under his belt starting in 2020-2021. Nikita Gusev's a player. His growth has been monumental from the end of October to the end of November. I think the challenge here for this team is defensively, what are they going to be? Because again, Subban has to perform as a top pair defenseman. Andy Green is uh, a wonderful soldier, but this is a player who recently celebrated a 37th birthday. Will Butcher, is there another level beyond the steps that he's made already? If the answer to those things, and Damon Severson, who next year will be in his seventh NHL season and starts to go into his prime, if those things trend positively, to me it's a playoff team as soon as next season. But there are a lot of ifs in that question, and we'll see what happens, how they're coached and how they move forward from what's been a really rough eight weeks to start the year. But there are still excellent pieces in place in this organization, that I believe. And the general manager does know what he's doing. Devils play-by-play broadcaster Steve Cangelosi. Cang, thanks again for taking the time to talk some movie and some puck with me. Really, really appreciate it. Good luck the rest of the way. I got news for you. I changed my mind again on Die Hard. Have a nice day, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good one, Joe. (laughs) Have a good one, Catch. For the second half of the show, I am joined by Sirius XM NHL host Scott Lachlan. Scott, how are you? Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So before we get into some hockey talk here, I just asked Steve Cangelosi this question, and I also want your take on it. With Christmas... Roaming around in a couple of weeks here, we got the we, Christmas spirit is, is upon us here. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Why or why not? Uh, you know what? I'm going to amaze you guys. Uh, Die Hard for me is like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and that is I haven't seen any of the movies. Wow. All right. I know that's a bit of a mic drop, guys, right off the hop here, but I got to be honest with you. I've never, 
I've never seen Die Hard, one, two, three, four, how many ever there are in the series. So I'm probably not the guy to ask about that. But I know that debate's been raging out there. And <laughs> I guess even having not seen any of the films, I know the phrase yippee ki because years ago we saw Bruce Willis sitting courtside at that NBA game, and uh, he decided to drop that phrase with a little bit of an expletive attached to it. I'm sure after a couple of glasses. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Also, uh, in your Twitter bio says you're a big heavy metal guy and I'm glad I'm joined on the show by a fellow headbanger here. Do you think we've seen the last of Slayer and did you see them on this farewell tour? You know what? I've only seen Slayer once and it was a part of the, uh, heaven and hell tour. I think years ago where it was a part of a, a three or four band type thing. I, I believe Motorhead was on the bill as well. Um, as far as, uh, as far as that being it, I mean, I guess Carrie King's wife came out and said that, uh, no, that's it. There's not a chance in heck, uh, that these guys are going to be reuniting again. I mean, I think a lot of people, quite frankly, were kind of holding out hope that the Dave Lombardo would be brought back at least for the final show or one of the final shows anywhere out there in Los Angeles. So, uh, it doesn't seem like that's the case, but as we've seen with so many bands, guys over the years too, I mean, the fact is that, uh, you can never say never, uh, the Motley crew, retirement even with the cessation of touring agreement that they apparently signed that lasted all of what four years yeah uh that being said being a diehard motley fan the fact that they're back i'm fully embracing it uh, but i think we've learned over the years you know 25 years after the fact with ozzy doing a no more tours tour tour that uh this, this is not something that we can really hold these guys to i think motley didn't they did they rip it and then burn it that, that contract? I don't know what they did with it. Yeah. Well, you know, the people say, you know, contracts are made to be broken anyway. I guess think, I, I think that was what Joe Elliott or somebody said at the news conference recently, uh, heard on Sirius XM volumes channel, uh, just listened to it on the way home as a matter of fact today. Uh, but look, I mean, you know, if there's money to be made and there's a promoter out there willing to pay some money and people are going to buy tickets, then, you know, I say, just keep doing it. I mean, that's, that's what these guys do. These guys are musicians. That's what they do. They play music. You're not going to find Nikki Six working around the corner from you at the local bank as a bank teller. <laughs> no disrespect intended to bank tellers, but he's a musician. He plays music. He creates music. He, he's a creative artist that way. And, you know, the fact that they're still willing to do it, uh, I'll be there, that's for sure. I saw I saw Slayer with Lamb of God and Testament and a couple and Behemoth also summer of 2018 in New Jersey because that was that was supposedly their last tour and then they mm. came back around to New Jersey this summer and I went to go see them again because I mean it's Slayer you can't you can't not go see Slayer and then they were here at Madison Square Garden in November I didn't get I didn't get a chance to go see them there because it's like I, I saw the same I saw the same show twice in the span of a year. I mean, I don't, I don't, also Madison Square Garden is more expensive. Uh, I, I can't afford a third time around, uh, but seeing them twice, I mean, they were fantastic. So, yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm a Kiss fan and the end of the road tour is still going on. I think at last, uh, last check, they were in Tokyo in Japan. I saw a, a picture that Paul Stanley had tweeted out a little bit earlier and, you know, that's going to go on for, we think the next two years, the end of the road is, is a real long and winding road as we're finding out, but. I mean, I've seen Kiss 35 times, I would estimate, during my life. And, you know, they came through Toronto and they played in March. And then they came back through Toronto again in the summertime in the middle of August. So uh, they're certainly exhausting the market. I saw the March show. I was away on holidays during the August show as well. But uh, look, I mean, like I said, I mean, if, if you're a fan of these bands, you don't condemn them for coming back. In fact, if you're a diehard fan of these bands, you embrace them for coming back. And you hope it's not the last time 
you're going to see them because the reality is that a lot of these guys are not getting any younger. And the reality is at some point it is going to be the last time. So just take it as far as you can. And, you know, you speak with your wallet. If you want to go see them, great. If you don't, then you don't. Uh, but again, if I'm a diehard fan of, of a band out there that wants to come back and unretires, then I, I say go for it. Absolutely. Tom, Kerry, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> come on, I go back on tour, eh? Uh, so um, let's let's move on to some hockey talk here. So unfortunately, the NHL has been surrounded in controversy the last few weeks. Now, I want to make it abundantly clear that I absolutely support every single story that, that gets released at every level regarding abuse from coaches, teammates, etc. Mm-hmm. What is happening right now has been happening for a long time, and while it might, it might not be good short-term for the sport of hockey, it is the best thing for everybody involved in this great sport in the long run because these abuses will at the very least decrease and volume. Just at the NHL level, we've heard horror stories about the abuse. Uh, coaches like Babcock, Peters, and Crawford did the, did the to their players. Now, another story has come out regarding Mike Keenan during his tenure with the Florida Panthers and former player Christian Huselius. I want to read you a few excerpts from this interview that was given to a Swedish sure. outlet called Expressen. Swedish, uh, not one of the two languages that I speak, but thankfully, uh, this article was translated to English. Now, uh, he said... He called playing under Mike Keenan uh, with the Florida Panthers horrible, saying he was told several times everyone would be, quote, better off if I went home. Husilius said Keenan felt he was too small to play in the NHL, and he also feels he was singled out because he was young and European. He stated he had become ill at one point while with the Panthers, and doctors could not determine what was wrong with him. Despite losing more than 20 pounds and dropping to just over 152 pounds in total, he claimed he was forced to play anyway he didn't want to say no because he felt he was very pressured and he also said with uh he also said this quote uh he was old school, you could say, and he didn't think I could ever play in the league because I was too thin. He said it to everyone several times that it would be better if 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 I went home. Most of the others he left in peace, but as I was European and young, it made a difference. I especially remember an occasion where we were going to Carolina to play a game. When we arrived, got off the bus, the team checked in at the hotel, but he told me I had to go on the exercise bike. So I got to sit on the test bike while the others on the team went to the hotel and eight you felt very alone yes it was tough it did not go very well for the team either we never went to the playoffs or anything like that it was the same guys he was on it was me then nick hagman who was a rookie just like me and a guy yaroslav bednar who uh he even sent home he was completely cracked scott what do you make of this well you know what uh it was a different time and now these stories as you say are are starting to come out here and that's not to say that it was right what happened back then it was a different time coaches handled players differently uh as the years have gone on we have started to realize that you know there there's mental abuse uh there's physical abuse and there are a lot of things that have to be taken into consideration when you're trying to get the best out of a player Mike Keenan, as we know, look, I mean, he was a taskmaster. I mean, even think back to the Rangers championship in 1994. And I think we've all heard about the fact that Hall of Fame defenseman Brian Leach was never a huge fan of Mike Keenan and the ways he motivated players and things of that nature. There have been other guys that, you know, didn't really get the opportunity. Eddie Olchuk, for one, playing for Mike Keenan, uh, didn't play even that much during the the season that the Rangers broke through to to end that 54-year curse. 
Um, I know you have to sort of be that type of guy, right? You have to, you have to be one of those quote unquote, Mike Keenan type guys to play for Mike Keenan. Um, a good friend of mine is Greg Gilbert, uh, former New York Islander, uh, former New York Ranger, of course, a part of that championship run. And he played for Mike in Chicago. He played for Mike with the Rangers and he played for Mike, I believe with the St. Louis blues too. in the time that Mike was running the head coach and general manager responsibilities of the St. Louis blues back then is, as controversial as he did it, uh, I would say, look, I mean, uh, we know that these things have happened. Uh, they're starting to come out here. Maybe this is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, there's no turning back. And like I said, to make you know myself perfectly clear, too, there's no condoning some of the things that went on in terms of the mental mind games and buttons that were trying to be pushed in terms of trying to motivate players to be better and that sort of thing. Um, it, it just was a different time and a different era. And now that this stuff is starting to come out, like you said, it's going to be a case where maybe in the long run it's a real good thing for the sport because what we have to realize is that is not only is this going to affect the National Hockey League and the way that coaches handle players, but it's going to have a trickle-down effect. And I think that you know when you go back to junior hockey, you go back to collegiate hockey, when you get back to the, the grassroots hockey levels, the minor hockey levels out there around North America, this is going to influence uh, in the way that coaches uh, handle players. And you know the verbal abuse, the mental abuse, the physical abuse – some of that stuff that went on years ago, and in some cases decades ago, it's no longer going to be acceptable. And, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I think we're going to have a better relationship between the coach and the player for it. You'll probably get better and more results out of a player by handling them a certain way. It's just a different time and coaches have to adjust. As I've often said, if the coaches don't adjust, they're not going to be around for much longer. For sure. And uh, I mean, you've been in this business for a long time, nearly three decades now. And, and speaking specifically from a hiring process, how do you think the last few weeks have affected the hiring processes of coaches, if at all? Because right now the Devils may be looking for a head coach. I mean, Ali Nazardine right now is the head coach interim anyway, uh, at least for right now. Uh, Toronto is a little bit of a different story because Sheldon Keefe was the favorite since day one. Uh, so they didn't have to really search, I mean, at all for a new head coach right. because Sheldon Keefe was already there. He was already ready to go. Uh, but for New Jersey, let's say, or a team that might be looking for a new head coach soon, like Minnesota, potentially Bruce Boudreaux on the hot seat over there, like these organizations, how does this right now change the dynamic of the hiring process of a head coach? That's a great question. And given the fact that the Devils are, we think, going to be looking for somebody, whether it's short-term or long-term, uh, it is an interesting time to be hiring a coach for sure. Uh, I think you're going to have to do better due diligence, more so than ever before. I think each coaching candidate is going to have to be scrutinized more so than ever before. Uh, maybe now that all these things have come out, you know, maybe not only do you look at a guy's professional history, you look at his, his junior history, maybe even look back to, you know, the players he affected in teams he was with back in minor hockey when he first started out as a coach. I mean, maybe it goes that, that deep now. And, you know, I, I kind of feel for the devils from the standpoint that, you know, you're looking for a bench boss, but the higher one in, in this environment right now uh, with how hot the barometer is, it deservedly so in, in a lot of these cases here, it's probably not the ideal time to be looking for a bench boss. And I think that's why Ray Shiro is saying we're going to ride this out a little bit. We're going to go with Alain Nasruddin. Uh, he's got coaching experience now at the professional level for a while now. He deserves this opportunity. So, look, if he can somehow, some way, I don't know that this is going to happen, and certainly it's not going to happen until after they trade Taylor Hall. 
But I think that in somehow, some way, if they make a run and make a playoff push or even get into the postseason, which would be against all odds, as we know, as far back as they are in the standings right now, then maybe he could be a long-term option for the New Jersey Devils. But the reality suggests that they're going to be looking elsewhere at some point. I think that they've got to kind of let, got to let the dust settle a little bit here in terms of where we're at. But to answer your question, the process of identifying a head coach in the National Hockey League now has changed forever. And I think rightly so. You are going to have to do a lot more due diligence on past histories of guys that are taken over, like I said, at many different levels of hockey. And I'm glad you mentioned Taylor Hall because there are a couple of names that will more than likely be dealt before the deadline. Former Hart winner Taylor Hall has 22 points in 27 games with the Devils so far, despite only scoring four goals, still leading that team in points. And Chris Kreider has 13 points in 27 games so far with the Rangers. Hasn't been a terrific start for him, but he scored 28 goals twice. He scored 28 goals last season. Both players are 28 and will be UFAs at the end of the year. Hall has a $6 million price tag and and Kreider comes with an even friendlier $4.625 million price tag. Where could these two guys go, and what could the return potentially be for these two players? Well, I've always thought that the idea of Taylor Hall being traded to the Avalanche was a good idea. Uh, the Avalanche have a lot of money to spend as far as the cap goes. They can afford him, I think, now, and they can afford him in the future because one of the best players in the league is Nathan McKinnon, and he's making $6.3 million per season for the next couple of seasons. He made news earlier this week coming through Toronto when he said even on his next deal, he'd be willing to take a little bit less because he wants to win with that developing, emerging group out there in Denver, Colorado. They're an exciting team now. They're going to be better in the future. I think we all know that. So I think when you factor in the salary cap space and maneuverability that a guy like Joe Sackick has has at his disposal, and you combine that with the fact that they've got uh, a system at the NHL level and through the pipeline that really is strong and deep in terms of defensemen, I think that that could be something that could work. Now, I've thrown it out there. I mean, Kale McCarr is going to be the rookie of the year, probably the Calder Trophy winner when it's all said and done. So he's as close to untouchable as you could get right up there with Nathan McKinnon with the, the avalanche. Beyond that, though, they've got a youngster like Connor Timmons who's trying to stay healthy and show what he can do. Sammy Gerrard's a good young puck-moving type defenseman. Uh, he perhaps could be had, maybe maybe not. They've got Bowen Byram, who's playing for Vancouver in the Western Hockey League right now, who projects to be the next Kale McCarr, if you will. So they're deep at the NHL level and at the other levels in terms of defense prospects. And you combine the fact that they've got the space to accommodate Hall with defensemen in the pipeline that New Jersey would be more than interested in, I think that could be a fit. Now, maybe it's Maybe it's a Sammy Gerrard plus a second rounder plus another sort of B prospect that maybe could get that deal done. A lot of it, though, would be contingent on Taylor Hall wanting to extend and to sign on long term with the Avalanche. You're not going to make that deal and give up a whole heck of a lot if Taylor Hall is essentially going to be a rental player and then is going to hit the market coming up on July 1st. So that would have to, to, to be there to get that deal for Colorado done and for New Jersey potentially done as well. Well, as for, far as Carter if, goes, if, if, I, if I may interrupt you for a second here, Adrian Dater, uh, about a half an hour ago, he tweeted out, there is no chance Avs are trading Gerard for any rental. So mm. that kind of throws a wrench into all of this. I mean, obviously yeah. things can change in, a, in an instant here, but the feeling is that Gerard is staying put no matter who they're trading for. 
Yeah, he's real, real impressive. But, you know, Adrian saying that is if he's a rental player. So if you can get an agreement done with Taylor Hall, if somehow, some way, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you get a contract extension done for Taylor Hall that pays him, let's say for the sake of discussion, you know, seven years and $77 million in total, would that be enough to get the deal done? Now you've got Taylor Hall locked up for the rest of his career, essentially. Uh, he's going to fit like a glove up front for you. He's one of the few guys in the league that might be able to at least stay uh, in a uh, skating race with a guy as quick as Nathan McKinnon is. So, yeah, a lot of it would have to do with the fact that, you know, is he a rental? In which case, New Jersey wouldn't get much back in return, as much back in return. Or is he going to be a guy that can extend in, in Colorado? If he is, the Avalanche might be more willing to give up just a little bit more. Maybe Gerard, maybe not. I don't think Byram's going anywhere. Maybe it's Timmons. Maybe it's somebody else. We'll have to wait and see. And as we say, Kale McCarr is going to be as close to untouchable. But as for Chris Kreider, I mean, you know, we've often heard about a team like Edmonton. Edmonton seems to make sense. Why? Because the Edmonton Oilers have been looking for depth at wing. Uh, they've got Drysaddle. They've got McDavid. Beyond that, though, what can you bank on in terms of offensive consistency and productivity? Probably not as much as you'd want for a team that you want to win a Stanley Cup someday with. So I think a Crider would make sense uh, for an Edmonton Oilers team uh, in building on the wing and trying to add some depth that way. Uh, so maybe that would be something that would pique the interest of the New York Rangers. And, you know, as we know, Jeff Gordon has done a remarkable job in retooling this Rangers team and this franchise is, is fast tracking towards being a Stanley Cup contender again, I think a lot quicker than anybody could have expected. For for Chris Kreider, what would be, it, let's, let's say the Edmonton Oilers are the trade partner and Kenny Holland and Jeff Gordon are deep in discussions right now. What would each side have to include for a trade that would include Chris Kreider uh, to go through? So let's say it's Chris Kreider. I would have to assume Puglia Yarvi is in this deal somehow. Yeah. Now yep. what? What is the other question mark uh, players and or picks that have to be involved in this deal for it to go through? Ah, you know what? I mean, Puglia to the Rangers has always made sense to me too. Uh, they've been looking for, with all due respect to Brendan Smith, who as it turns out has been, you know, more or less the chauffeur and the confidant for young Capo Caco. <laughs> they adjust the lights in North America, both on and off the ice. Uh, Pooley-Arvey would be a great running mate for a guy like Kako. So it does make sense uh, from that standpoint. Uh, he's looking for a new lease on life. He and his agent have said that Edmonton's not in the picture anymore. So it won't be this season, but maybe next season in a different locale. Maybe it's New York. Maybe it's somewhere else. Uh, if you were trading Kreider to Edmonton, uh, I think probably Pooley-Arvey and, and a pick might get it done. Um, I think that would be it. Because I think when you look at you know how – much further along in his career Kreider is as compared to where Pooley-Arvey is. Now, Pooley-Arvey at this point is clearly just based on potential. He's literally in, what, 90-some-odd NHL games, not really shown much in terms of consistency. Uh, he hasn't yet proven that he can play in the best league in the world. Starring over in Finland and arguably being the best player in that league this season has, uh, I think, grown him to a certain extent, but he's still got to prove that he can do it in the NHL. And because of that, if you're the Rangers, you're banking on his potential being realized at some point. Maybe you get some protection by a draft pick being thrown into the mix as well, and maybe that gets it done. And again, the Edmonton Oilers would be picking up a speedy winger who's got some good size uh, that's had you know some 20-some-odd goal seasons, like we say, uh, that could really uh, fit in well with the Edmonton Oilers. And again, where I talk about a guy like Taylor Hall potentially keeping up with a guy like McKinnon, one of the top skaters in the league, the same could be said for Chris Crotter, who's a great skater for his size, 
uh, perhaps patrolling the ring for a guy like Connor McDavid. So uh, I think that could work potentially down the road, but you know, as we as we know, that would be a trade for the future for the New York Rangers and more or less for the present for the Edmonton owners if it would come to fruition. An interesting name I want to throw at you in this trade scenario is Alex Georgiev. I'm a Rangers fan. I've been watching this guy a lot, and he's he's spectacular. I mean, this guy is a, is a stud, undrafted, and he's he's been amazing. I hate to dangle him on the trade market because he's been so good, but Lundqvist is on the, is on the hook for 8.5 mil until the end of next season, and Igor Shostakhin, the heir apparent, uh, as he's known around here, has been completely lights out in his first season in the AHL. Georgiev will be an RFA at the end of the, at the, end of the season. He's 23 years old, making less than $800,000, so he's not making a whole lot of money in terms of teams that are knocking up against the cap here. Uh, he's he's on a very team-friendly deal right now. I'm assuming teams like Toronto, Buffalo, Calgary, and also potentially Edmonton uh, are clawing at Alex Georgiev right now, not only for his skill, but also his low cap hit. So what is the likelihood a team possibly overpays in order to shore up their goaltending? And what would that kind of package look like? Because there are some, there are certain teams out there right now that are playing well, but they can't stop a puck to save their lives. So potentially somebody like a Georgiev who is showing that he can shore up this, uh, shore up the blue crease here and provide some sort of stability in there could provide. Yeah, that's something to think about. And when I think of Georgiev, I kind of look at him in the same way that I once looked at Antti Ranta, right? Just a guy who was a backup goalie, but was on the verge of kind of breaking out and solidifying himself as a potential starter in the league. Now, working against Ranta, uh, who kind of has lost his job for the most part this season, uh, to Darcy Kemper because Kemper's been so good with the Arizona Coyotes. Ranta's been good when he's been healthy, but injuries have certainly curtailed his career uh, the past little while. But I kind of look at Georgiev in the same way I once looked at Ranta. Like, you think that this guy's just on the verge of breaking out and being that guy, and he's probably going to have to go somewhere else to get it. You're right, because they've got Sisturkin doing so well with Hartford at this point. And we all think that Lundquist isn't going anywhere, that he's going to end his career where he wants to end it in New York City with the New York Rangers. So given all that, um, I think Sisturkin perhaps is the, the goaltender of the future in New York beyond the next two seasons we're talking about. Um, now, getting back to the question, there are certainly a lot of teams out there, and you named a number of them, that I think would be interested. Yeah, Montreal starts Caden Primo last night. And although Carey Price is going to be a Hall of Famer someday, He's got a lot of years left on his contract, and at some point they're going to have to ease the workload on Kerry Price, who's had a past injury uh, issue to deal with as well in, in the last couple of years also. So uh, the price at this point would, would, would have to be, I would think, you know, somebody of, of equal age, uh, I would think. If you're, you're building uh, with a guy that, you know, you would either plug in as a 1 or a 1A, or in the case of a Montreal, he'd be a 2 for the time being with the potential to play more and more as the years go on and, and CP 31 gets a little bit older, I think you'd probably want to get something uh, relatively young back in return. And we know that that's where the Rangers are at in their franchise progression. I don't think the Rangers at this point are close enough where they say, you know what, let's go out and we can pick up a 29, 30 year old forward here because we just need to add a little bit more offensive depth and burst. I don't think given what the Rangers have under undertook the last couple of years and undertaken the last couple of years that Jeff Gordon's prepared to go down that road. So uh, I would think that you're probably looking at getting somebody back who as well, and it's not going to be at the goaltending position clearly, but it'll be somebody that maybe is in that same sort of vintage, that same sort of demographic that shows signs of breaking out as a star uh, that could perhaps be that down the road, uh, just scratching the surface as to where they're, they're at. And I think that's what the Rangers would probably end up with. 
you mentioned Brandon Smith a little bit ago, and I want to bring this up to you because last night, uh, the Blue Jackets and the Rangers game, uh, Libor Hayek went down with an injury, and <clears throat> Brendan Smith plays fourth line winger for reasons beyond my understanding. Uh, <laughs> and and during the third period, uh, Dave Maloney uh, interviewed Lindy Ruff, and he basically told him that he doesn't... I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but he basically told him that he doesn't trust Smith as a sixth defenseman, so he will remain a fourth-line winger, which I tweeted out. I mean, which is great considering the Rangers traded two decently high draft picks for def- defenseman Brendan Smith a couple years ago. So, uh, in turn, when you mentioned Brendan Smith, that, that instantly came to my mind because he's clear, I, he can't be a defenseman, I guess, according to Lindy Ruff, who uh, is it hasn't done a phenomenal job coaching defenseman anyway, uh, and now he's playing in a role that he's not suited for. So I don't really know what <laughs> what's going on with him uh, and the Rangers. Uh, but that 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 whole situation, this whole marriage, has quickly uh, dwindled from honeymoon to what? Where are we? What are we doing with this? Uh, where are yeah. we in the relationship now? I mean, it's it's weird. It really is. Yeah, well, a couple things about that. You know, it, it came out recently that he has been the, the chauffeur for Capo Caco, and he said he's trying to learn some finish along the way, uh, you know, to, to get the kid to break into the show a little bit. Beyond that, though, it's interesting that Lindy Ruff would be talking about that, too, because, you know, if you remember back to Lindy Ruff's playing career, Lindy, when he was in Buffalo, most specifically, was a guy that played defense and forward. He was like Brendan Smith's become. He was a bit of a swingman. I mean, you could kind of rotate him back and forth, and he played both forward and defense back in his day, too. So he knew a bit about that. Brendan Smith's a kid from Mimico, Ontario, just outside of the city of Toronto. And, and I watched him play junior hockey before he went to the University of Wisconsin, which had a great, real ability to churn out NHL-ready defensemen. I mean, we're talking about Ryan McDonough, certainly, Justin Schultz. Uh, the list goes on and on at all the Wisconsin defensemen that have kind of jumped into the NHL, Jake Gardner others like that that have kind of stepped in over the years. I remember talking to Mike Eves about him when he first went into their program, too, because I watched him play for St. Mike's, the St. Mike's Buzzers in the Ontario Junior Hockey League. And when he played junior hockey, he was a teammate of, uh, of Andrew Cogliano and some other guys that went on to some, some greater heights. And Brendan Smith was a great skater. Like, he was like a wild colt out there. And even though he did play defense, uh, at times, it seemed like there was, you know, a, a real challenge at trying to rein him in. Uh, he was just like a wild colt that kind of needed to be tamed. Uh, he's carved out a career for himself, but he has, I think, over the course of his career, more or less become a risk-reward type guy. And maybe that's where it does make sense because he is a good skater uh, who's played defense for the most part. But even going back to junior hockey, you could see those traits in him that he was such a good skater. He could clearly adapt to forward as well. Uh, and you know, uh, based upon the way you're describing it, it's almost like they're moving him up front because they've got no other choice because he can't play defense as a depth guy anyway. Uh, but the reality is that he's always sort of had that ability to, to, to play both ways, defense and forward, uh, because he has been a risk reward type player throughout the course of his career. And that goes back to his days in junior hockey. I get it. Right. I, I get what you're saying. He's also 30 years old. He has never played yep. forward in, it's not but a good contract. No, no, no that's to, to say the least. And I, he didn't. I mean, Lindy Rafael, he didn't exactly say those words, but he kind of made it known that yeah, Brendan Smith would probably be better as a forward instead of a defenseman, which is which is his primary position. Which I mean, when I heard that, 
did that did not did not sound great uh scott one last question before i let you go really appreciate your time uh what has been some of your biggest surprises so far this season could be a team could be a player could be something else like for me tampa being inconsistent at least in, i didn't think mm-hmm. december 6th right we i'd be saying that tampa bay would not be in a playoff spot and yet they they are not at the playoff spot, and they're also 5-4-1 and one the last 10 games. They've been inconsistent so far. They haven't really found a way to to go back to their dominant ways of last season, despite having pretty much the same team. Uh, and it's it's been kind of a, a turbulent ride for the, for the Lightning so far. And also, I mean, you mentioned him a little bit a little bit ago, but Kale McCarr looking like a Norris caliber player in his <clears throat> rookie season. Uh, has also been very surprising to me because, I mean, Kale McCarr being good hasn't been a secret, right? This is not something that right. nobody knew about. Everybody knew Kale McCarr was going to be very good. But the level he's been playing at right now, out of the gate, is very surprising to me because not only is he holding his own, he's been absolutely dominating everybody out there. And not only could be is he a Calder favorite, but I mean, this is somebody that I didn't expect to be in the NARS conversation, and yet here we are. So it's what, John Carlson at one, and potentially Kale McCarr at two? I mean, this is insane. Yeah, John Carlson clearly would be the NARS winner, but you're right. I mean, you could clearly at this point see that Kale McCarr could make the case that he should be at least a nominee for the NARS trophy after he makes his acceptance speech for winning the Calder trophy as the rookie of the year. You want to talk about surprises? Yeah, Tampa Bay is surprising to me as well. They've got to make up some games here because they started over in Sweden like they did. So they've got games in hand on everybody. Uh, but as we're often reminded, right, I mean, games in hand only mean something if you actually win those games in hand. And right now we're not so sure about the Lightning. Uh, they have at times been average at best. The thing that really alarms me about Tampa Bay this season uh, and everybody says, you know, they'll take the foot off the gas a little bit during the regular season because what it means to them to, to win in April and beyond is what, you know, matters most. You got to make it there, right? Away. You do have to get there. You still have to do the heavy lifting to put yourself into a position to have success in the playoffs, too. So they're going to have to get it going here pretty soon. The thing about the Bulls that's really alarming, though, is, is defensively. They don't look like the same team this year. You look at Andre Vasilevsky. He looks like he's human. And I, I don't know whether it was the sweep at the hands of Columbus or what it was, uh, but he just doesn't look like the same goalie. He's not insulated in the same way. They're not playing the same sort of defensive hockey as we saw in their 5-4 loss to Minnesota. They didn't used to have to play those types of high-scoring games, even though, you know, more so than any other team, they had more firepower than anybody else. I think over in the Western Conference, I look at it, and who'd have thought at this stage of the season – 30 games into Arizona's season that Arizona led by Rick Tockett are first in the Pacific and right on their collective tails are the Edmonton Oilers. I mean, we all knew about McDavid and Drysaddle, but nobody thought that they were capable of being a better defensive team. Nobody thought that Clefbaum would step up and emerge the way he has this season. Most of all, nobody thought yours truly included that the two headed monster of Mike Smith and Miko Koskinen would be capable of giving them this type of goaltending game in and game out. So I think the Pacific, the battle for the top surprises me. Arizona, we thought, would be much better being a a playoff hunt. Now they're leading the division. Edmonton's right behind them. And i got to say, let's give some love to the Minnesota Wild. I mean, a month ago we are talking about Bruce Boudreaux perhaps losing his job. Bill Guerin told me during the offseason, he said, Bruce is my guy, even though I didn't hire him and I've inherited the head coach. Bruce is my guy, is the quote that he gave me. Uh, He said he's had a, a history of winning. 
He's had a good track record. They got off to a tough start, though, right? They got off to a tough start. We wondered whether or not Bruce was going to survive it. Bill Guerin said, we're going to ride this thing out. He's proven to be very, very astute as a rookie general manager in the league. They're 8-0-3 in their last 11, and don't look now, but the Minnesota Wild, who a month ago were given up for dead, all of a sudden they're holding down the second wild card in the Western Conference. It's been a remarkable recovery by that Bruce Boudreaux-led group. For sure. I mean, I still kind of am skeptical of Minnesota. The one thing I will say about Arizona, and I mean, call me call me crazy, but Arizona, I I didn't, I was I'm not surprised by it because they were very good last season, but injuries pretty much just derailed the whole the whole year for them. But now that uh, and and. They're first in the in their division on top of Phil Kessel, who scored twice last night. Yeah, but, but he hasn't been scoring at at his normal incredible pace. So on top of Phil Kessel not producing to Phil Kessel like standards, the Arizona Coyotes now are are sitting on top of the Pacific Division. And the Edmonton Oilers have been, to me anyway, a bigger surprise than Arizona because we've seen uh, a lot of, as at least uh, at least I did, that uh, Arizona last season had a lot of glimpses that they that there's something special there, but there were a lot of there were so many injuries. Ronta kept kept getting injured. The whole team uh, just was made of glass, I guess, that season. Then they they just couldn't play at a uh, with a healthy team and they unfortunately couldn't get it together uh for the for a playoff run but now that they're finally sort of kind of being healthy now it's looking like this is going to be a a pretty solid team for years to come but for Edmonton their biggest surprises are James Neal who I mean you could say, okay, well, he had a uh, he couldn't score in Calgary, but you could assume that he would score at least a little bit more uh, than he did in Calgary, which is to be which he is. But also Zach Cassian, I mean, Zach Cassian went from being an afterthought to now all of a sudden being a, a huge portion of their offense. I mean, yeah, he's playing with McDavid, sure, and I guess I could score with McDavid if if, uh, if put in that line. And I, I'm a goaltender by trade. I don't. I'm not a. I'm not a great skater. I'm a, I'm a goaltender. So I, I guess I even you put me on the line with McDavid. I guess I could score a couple of points here and there. But Zach Cassian is not only just a benefactor of Connor McDavid. He's also producing on his own too, and it's been that's also a, a, a healthy surprise for me. Uh, just seeing the the evolution of Zach Cassian go from all right, I mean he's there to okay, now we actually have to worry about this guy. Yeah, Cassian's a guy who scored a little bit in junior hockey, but yeah, you're right. I mean he's more or less a depth player. Uh, he's relished the fact that he's played not only with McDavid but with Leon Drysaddle as well. And more often than not, Drysaddle and McDavid have been on that top line. And, you know, Cassian, for the most part, has been the consistent winger as well. So uh, I think that's great. One thing that Edmonton had, too, going, coming into this season, I thought, that would put them a little bit further ahead than most people anticipated was Dave Tippett coming in after a couple of years on the sidelines, uh, working with the Seattle franchise behind the scenes to get that thing up and running. Looks like, you know, it's going to be Ronnie Francis who gets to put the finishing touches on selecting that team now. But Dave Tippett, a well-respected head coach, who's one of the winningest coaches in league history, he's a defense-first type coach, a Dave King disciple from years ago when he played for for the Canadian national team in the Olympics and so on and so forth, a responsible defensive player and a responsible defensive coach. And we saw last season with the Islanders, it's exactly what a defense-first 
coach with the right system can mean to a team with what Barry Trotz did in historic fashion by chopping a full goal per game off of the amount of goals the New York Islanders gave up. So I thought that Dave Tippett going in there could add a little bit more structure to that situation. They could become a much better defensive team if only because of the system that they play, and that's kind of played itself out. The one thing about Arizona, too, and this was Brian Burke when he talked to us a little bit earlier today, uh, the former NHL general manager, Brian Burke, mentioned to us the, the, the fear that he's got for Arizona. And now Phil Kessel's got the six goals, and now he's going back to Pittsburgh, and you know he'll be celebrated for, for their Stanley Cup success and such. But the thing about Arizona that would concern him, he said, is, is the goalie, and talking about Kemper, and goalies in general, he and Ranta, have been so good. You know, if at any point some of these goalies start to go through slumps, talking about Kemper and Ranta, then you wonder, do they have enough offense to win games? Can they, can they stop a skid if all of a sudden, you know, Darcy Kemper doesn't have a 920-plus save percentage and all of a sudden it falls down to 905 or 906 or 907? Will Arizona's game fall back and will they struggle to win because they don't really have the offense right now with Nick Schmaltz leading the team in scoring that you'd hope that they would have? And I think that John Scheika, the closer this team gets to the playoffs on or before the trade deadline, the general manager is going to have to go out and probably add another offensive piece to that puzzle. Right now it's a great story, but as Berkey told us a little bit earlier, right now they're riding the wave of some real, real strong goaltending and opportunistic scoring. I mean, last night they got three goals on, what, 18 shots in their victory at Philadelphia. So they're taking advantage of the opportunities they've been given, and they're riding the backs of their goaltenders. The goaltending's been great. We'll have to see what happens if, in fact, they have a, a couple of leaks along the way. Uh, I know we're going over here, but I, you quickly mentioned Ron Francis, and he's under some hot water right now, uh, especially mm-hmm. with this with this Bill Peters thing, uh, the, which was brought to his attention. He didn't do anything about it. Uh, and then the the owner of the, of the Hurricanes, Pete Carmanos, and later said, if that was brought to my attention, he would have been fired in a nanosecond. It wasn't. Uh, and now Ron Francis is running the operation over at Seattle. I mean, really quickly here, is do you think anything's going to come of this? Do you think he's going to stay up with Seattle, or could there potentially could could Seattle potentially see their second general manager before even playing a single game? No, I think Ronnie Francis is fine. Uh, I think that that he came out, and we kept on waiting. Right when when Rod Brindamore came out, and Brindamore was an assistant coach on Bill Peters' staff. When these two physical altercations with players. Uh, these two cases of physical abuse with players, Mikel Jordan and an unidentified Canes player. Jordan was kicked by Peters, uh, and the other player apparently was uh, punched by Bill Peters on the bench. And so far, that player has not come forward. And, you know, the player, I'm guessing, is still playing in the league, so we're not expecting that that that's going to happen. Um, I, I think that Ron Francis, everybody wondered, well, how could Ron let this go on? Why was Bill Peters not fired as soon as that came out? Because Rod Brindamore, Rod came out and pretty much said, I confirm that the two cases that we're talking about here did in fact happen. He said, I passed it on our concerns to management and they felt like he was dealt with. Rod Brindamore is concerned about his club right now and looking forward, not in the past. So that's Rod Brindamore admitting that these two things happened. So now the ball's in Ron Francis court and we wondered, well, Ron, what happened here? You know, what happened when they came to you with it? And for a couple of days, he was kind of waiting in the weeds. And then Peter Carmanos came out and talked with his Seattle paper with Jeff Baker and basically said that if he had have known about Bill Peters, he would have fired him, as you suggested, 
in a nanosecond was the quote that was used. That forced Ron Francis to spring out. He sent the, the statement out. He sent the statement out that said that he did brief ownership on exactly what happened. So it seems like Ron Francis said, you know what? I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here, but I'm going to come out here and I'm going to be honest. I briefed ownership on it. So the Hall of Famer Peter Carmanos insinuated that he didn't know about it. And had he known about it, Peters would have been fired. Ron Francis said that he did, in fact, brief ownership on it. And where it goes beyond this, I'm not quite sure. But uh, I think that this, you know, in some ways, you know, uh, vindicates a guy like Ron Francis because he said, look, the coaching staff brought it to me. I took it to ownership. And that's kind of where it was left. We will monitor the situation as more information uh, appears to us publicly. Sirius XM NHL host Scott Lachlan. Scott, super appreciate taking the time. Uh, plug your social media, plug your show, plug anything else that you want. The floor is yours, man. Well, you can follow me on uh, on Twitter at Lachlan SXM. That's at Lachlan SXM on Twitter. Uh, I, along with former National Hockey League general manager, uh, Gord Stellick, former Leafs GM, former assistant general manager with Neil Smith with the New York Rangers way back when, uh, Gordon and I do the NHL morning skate. Uh, Gord's on from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern time each and every morning on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio, Sirius XM Channel 91. I join in at 8 o'clock, and I will go till 11 a.m. Eastern time each day. And, you know, we have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, we're talking hockey and getting paid for it, so it's a good life. Uh, always a lot of storylines, certainly, to get into. And uh, it's, it's just great stuff. It's just great stuff to be able to certainly uh you know watch sports for a living and watch the national hockey league for a living and then uh you know turn on the microphone and the the red light's still going on so that's a good thing at this point and uh and be able to talk about it it's a it's a fantastic thing we got going on nhl morning skate every weekday morning from 7 a.m to 11 a.m eastern awesome scott again really appreciate taking the time we'll talk to you again real soon all right i look forward to it thank you thank you scott and this has been episode number 76 of chill square number 77 coming out next week remember to rate the show give it five stars and have a podcast or spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast please give it a good rating leave a review if you are so inclined and i'll talk to you again next week